chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles to follow along, please do so. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk with me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be named Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, after you in their generations." For an, ever, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all of the land of Canaan, and an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall make a covenant, you and your descendants, after throughout the generations. We continue this morning in our series of experiencing God in our lives by asking the question, how? How can we experience more of God's power in our lives? Isn't that what we want? More power in our lives, more power, experiencing more power in our church? Isn't that what Paul prays for us in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, when he prays, May the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He wants us, he wants our understanding to be enlightened to the fact that we have all of God's power at our disposal because of what he did for us when he raised Christ from the dead. In our text this morning, God appears to Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty. It's actually the very first time this particular name of God is used in Scripture. Now, previous to that, in Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham fought a battle against the four kings of the east to, um, to rescue Lot, God appeared to Abraham and said that he was Abraham's, um, he was Abraham's sh- shield. He had protected him. And then when Abraham was worried about refusing the wealth of the king of Sodom, God said that he was his reward. He would provide for Abraham. And many of us know God as Father. That's an over, overarching New Testament concept of God. He cares for us. He directs us. He disciplines us. A personal Father, an intimate Father. We know Him as Shepherd, the great Shepherd who meets our needs and guides us in all of life's affairs. But I would venture to say that there aren't a lot of Christians who know God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This particular name pictures God's strength and power to to accomplish impossible things. El is a Hebrew word for God, and Shaddai means Almighty. 
It means the all-powerful and all-sufficient God who can do anything and meet any need. That's our God. Very few know God deep down in their heart as El Shaddai. They've always seen God in Scripture who delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's almighty. One who splits the Red Sea. That's almighty. One who turns water into wine. That's, that's almighty. The one who raises the dead and heals the lame. That's almighty. But then they wonder why they never experience the miraculous in their own lives. Why do many Christians not have a personal experience of this? Here in our passage, God reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who, uh, for whom nothing is impossible. Then he renews his promise of a seed and making him into a great nation. Folks, this is the aspect of God that we all need to know deep down in our heart. Not only do we need to know Him in our individual lives, but we need Him in order to see our families and our churches and even our nations transformed. Nothing is impossible. We need to know God as El Shaddai. Paul made it his mission to not only know Christ, but to know His power. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His his death. So many Christians are content with knowing Christ. And that's where their growth stops. They don't pursue knowing His power. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those, we're talking about God's power, strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. God is looking for people in and through whom to demonstrate His power. Folks, may we be that people. Are we willing? Do we want to see that power? So how can we have lives that continually experience God's power, that continually experience the miraculous? This morning I'd like to pull out five principles that we can kind of hang our hats on out of Genesis chapter 17, where God reveals himself as El Shaddai to Abraham. First of all, to experience God's power in our lives, we must not discount God's ability to accomplish the impossible. Easier said than done, done, perhaps. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So there in Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham at 99 years old to tell him that he is about to increase his numbers and that this would, be, that this would happen through Sarah. Impossible. Humanly, absolutely impossible. Both Abraham and Sarah were beyond the age of childbearing. And besides that, Sarah was barren, unable to have children. And therefore, this word from the Lord to them seemed incredulous, actually unbelievable, as in not able to be believed. Must have heard wrong, right? 
How many times do we do that? Is that God? No, it couldn't be God. He wouldn't be asking me to do that. But as we know, that's exactly what God did. And, and we're going to get deeper into that story a little bit later on in the series. But, but why is it that so many believers like Abraham don't even consider the possibility of the miraculous? We ask questions like, how, how, can, how can God fix this situation? How can God turn this around? How, how could God use me? Why do we not consider that God is in the miracle business working business anymore, and that it's through miracles that he often chooses to glorify himself. In last week's Dexter Chelsea Sun-Times, there's an article about the young man lost at Glacier National Park. We talked about that. We prayed, prayed for him. Take a look at the headline, Dexter Teen Defies Odds, Miraculous Rescue in Glacier National Park. Folks, the Sun-Times news was glorifying God's miraculous work without even knowing it. Miraculous rescue. The rescue workers were shocked that they found him alive. In their minds, impossible. <laughs> but folks, people were praying. People were praying, and God did the impossible. You see, it's not that God doesn't work in the mundane. He does, he's, he's constantly working. But he especially shows his glory through the impossible, if we believe. Christ told his disciples about the impossibility of mankind being saved on their own. In Matthew 19, he said it was easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to be saved. And the disciples responded, who then can be saved? It's impossible then. And Jesus replied, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Strong statement by Jesus. You see, the greatest way we experience El Shaddai's power is in our salvation. We were dead in our transgressions. We've been studying this through Colossians. Dead in our transgressions and sins. But God resurrected us. We were resurrected from death to life, from darkness to light. And as we've been studying in Colossians, our old nature was actually put to death and, and replaced with a new nature. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, but not with God. Salvation essentially is the greatest miracle that we can experience. The natural mind is at enmity with God, Paul says in Romans 8. It cannot accept or understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit. Mankind is dead to God and needs a miracle to be saved. And since believers have experienced the greatest miracle... Why would we not continually expect God to work other miracles now in our lives? Consider what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. What then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? More than salvation, he's promising here. If God gave us His Son, the greatest gift He could ever give us, how much more will He meet all of our needs? How much more will He move mountains to provide for us? One of the things we must take from God's appearance to Abraham at 99 years old, when it was physically impossible to have a child, is that God often works in the impossible. I think He loves doing that because His name is then glorified. 
What is your impossible situation this morning? Personally, in the family, in the extended family, are you expecting God's miracle? Don't discount the impossible. Our God is a God of the impossible. In fact, by discounting the impossible, we often miss the glory of God. Remember what Mark said happened in Jesus' hometown? Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why? Because of their lack of faith. Sometimes our lack of faith in the impossible will actually keep God from moving and working. Is our faith, or lack thereof, keeping God from breaking into our circumstance in a special way? Whatever our situation, we must not discount the impossible. We are going to see El Shaddai, God Almighty, move in our lives and in our church. And we need to believe that. After decades of walking with El Shaddai, Abraham started to expect God to perform miracles. And that's where he wants us. He wants us to expect the miraculous from him. It's easy to say, I believe. But do we really believe? Deep down in our heart, Believe enough to act on it. Are we expecting miracles in our life, in, in our difficult situations? Are we expecting miracles in our church? Folks, we cannot discount the miraculous when it comes to God. Secondly, to experience God's power, we must walk blamelessly before the Lord. Again, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me. And be blameless. When God appears to Abraham, he tells him to walk before him and be blameless. Now, the word blameless in the Hebrew language is talmim, and it doesn't mean sinless. Some people assume ah, sinless, impossible. The word actually means that which is complete or entirely in accord with truth and fact, or that which is wholly devoted to the Lord. Walking, of course, is, is, uh, is a picture of continuous reputation. It's our daily walk with the Lord. It's our daily life, regular living. It may not be exciting all the time. It's not running and climbing and jumping. But God wants us to faithfully walk step by step, day by day with Him, entirely in accord with His truth and wholly devoted to Him. Kind of sounds like the sanctified life that we've been talking about, right? Holy and blameless. He wants us to be sanctified, made holy by the Holy Spirit. When, when believers walk faithfully with God day by day, He moves in mighty ways. In Genesis 5, verse 24, we, we read about Enoch. You remember him? Remember what it says? Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him. That must have been an amazing life. I wish, I wish there was more explanation about Enoch's life. He walked with God. How many believers walk by themselves and, and ask God periodically come and walk alongside them? We are to walk with God, not ask God to walk with us. 
to Abraham, he said, to walk blamelessly. Paul says in Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit's leading. We need to keep in step with Him, not asking God to keep in step with us. That's walking blamelessly with God, fully devoted to Him and fully devoted to His Word. We must understand that if we want to continually experience God's power, we cannot walk in sin. King David learned this back in Psalm 66, 18. He says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. He wouldn't have even listened, much less done anything with His power. There are so many Christians who miss the miraculous in their lives because they fail to walk blamelessly in response to God's grace. We cannot expect to see El Shaddai move when we are not walking step by step with him. Thirdly, to experience God's power, we must continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's in the Old Testament. Look, look, take a look at verses 5 through 7 in Genesis 17. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Then God promises a number of things. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the promises continue from God. Now, this is, a, this is really interesting because this involves a name change. There are three things that I've noticed here. Number one, First of all, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram meant exalted father. Abraham meant father of a multitude or father of nations. So what's so important about that? Well, first of all, the name change pictures a change in, in a character or destiny. God's purpose for Abraham at this point in his life is now made known to him. He is to become a father of multitudes or of many nations. The second thing I saw is uh, the name chain pictures God's lordship, his sovereignty over Abraham. To name someone in the ancient world, kind of as it does today, pictures lordship or sovereignty. Only someone in complete ownership of another could name them. Mothers and fathers named their children. Kings at times have renamed their subject. There's a great example of that in Daniel chapter 1. When he and his friends uh, were taken to Babylon, and the chief official of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, uh, uh, renamed them. It says, a chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to uh, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. If you go back all the way to the very beginning, Adam named the animals of the field, to Jacob, God gave the new name Israel. Jesus changed Simon to Peter, changed Saul to Paul. And that only happened when Jesus became Lord. He became sovereign. And here God named Abraham because he was his sovereign. But there's something even more significant in this name change that I had not seen before, and I found this fascinating. The name change also pictures the power of the Holy Spirit. This would not normally stand out to us, but it would stand out to the, the ancient culture because God, God adds a breath sound to Abram's name. No longer would it be Abram, but Abraham. 
the ha sound was added. Now you may say, yeah, so? The sacred name of God, and they call it the Tetragrammaton because it has four Hebrew letters. This is the holy name of God. There's a Yod, the He, the Wow, and the He. We tend to pronounce that Yahweh. This is God's holy name. Now, watch. When God changes Abram's name to Abraham, he inserted the Hebrew letter He from his divine name into Abram's name. Now, what's significant is that the letter He also has a strong breathy sound, representing the sound of life, the breath of life when it's pronounced. A few verses later, God also changes Sarai's name to Sarah, and according to commentators, inserts a second He of his divine name into Sarah's name. Reading from the Hebraic Prophetic Study Bible, I did some research because I Seriously, is that, that actually what's going on? And so I did some extra study to, to see. But the Hebraic Prophetic Study Bible says this, Thus, after God inserts the two letters of His divine name, one into Abraham's name and the other into Sarah's, God gives new life to Sarah and Abraham, making them fruitful and giving them their son of promise. Isn't that fascinating? Remember, Abraham was 99 years old and past childbearing, and Sarah was, uh, she was barren. James Boyce uh, pointed out as well in his commentary, he said that the breathy sound would jump out to the ancients because it represents the Spirit. The Hebrew word ruach, ending with he, is a word for wind or breath, but it's also the word for spirit. The creation story says that the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters. Similarly, when it says God breathed into man the breath of life, it could also be translated the Spirit of life. Not only was this true in the Hebrew culture, but also in the Greek culture and the Roman culture. The Greek, the the word pneumos is spirit, but also means breath. In Latin, the word spiritus, spirit, similarly means breath. So God gave Abraham the breath sound, and he did the same with his wife Sarah. Sarai meant my lady or princess, and her new name uh, Sarah meant princess of a multitude or princess of nations, similar to Abraham. So in effect, not only did God breathe into both of them new life to give birth to a son, which was absolutely impossible, But God also empowered them with the Holy Spirit who would then accomplish the great work of God through Abraham and Sarah to reach many nations. As we know from our studies in Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians, one of the necessary components of experiencing God's power is the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 1, we... Read in verse 4 that Jesus gave the disciples this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. What was that gift? Verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The same Ruach that was given to Abraham and Sarah to begin reaching the multitudes is the same Ruach given to us to continue His work of reaching the multitudes or reaching the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. The 
Holy Spirit was crucial for them to accomplish God's will and to have God's power in doing it. And the Holy Spirit is crucial in our own lives if we expect God to do anything through us. In order to experience God's power like Abraham and the apostles, we too must experience God's Spirit. God essentially tells Abraham and that he, God, would complete the work through his spirit. In fact, if you go through Genesis 17, you'll find 12 I will statements after that promise. I will make you a fruitful, I will, I will, excuse me, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations out of you. I will, I will, 12 times. All the things God's going to do by the power of his spirit. Even Abraham's walking before the Lord and being blameless would be done through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is true of us as well. You remember in Ephesians 5, 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live godly lives within the new nature that Christ has provided us. And it's that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So no, we don't have to do anything in our own strength. God empowers us and He works through us if we are willing for that. Do we want to experience God's power in our lives to conquer sin, to accomplish great works? It's only possible through the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, to experience God's power, we must understand our weakness. In verse 10 of Genesis 17, we read this. This is my covenant with you, God said to Abraham, and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, what's the significance of circumcision for Jews? What did that represent? Well, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant between uh, himself with Abraham and his descendants. They were all his people. When God covenanted with Noah to not destroy the earth again, the sign was a rainbow. Here, God gives a sign of circumcision. It symbolized one's inner spiritual commitment to God, but it was not salvation itself. Circumcision was not salvation itself. In fact, even the Old Testament, God spoke of the circumcision of the heart. That's, that's not a New Testament concept because that's where all the change takes place. It's in the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we read, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. This is fourth book in the Old Testament. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. And then in Jeremiah chapter 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. So circumcision was to be an external sign of an internal work. It was very obviously very similar to the baptism for believers of today. Baptism doesn't save, we know that but it represents the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ in our salvation. Remember Paul talking about this in Colossians chapter 2 as, as we studied through that. He says, In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, what people refer to as a sinful nature, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, Abraham tried in his own power, in his own flesh, to help God accomplish his promise. So he took Hagar and had a child, Ishmael. But you see, that was Abraham's idea. That wasn't God's plan. And so circumcision for Abraham and his descendants became a constant reminder of what Abraham tried to do on his own in the weakness of his flesh. So circumcision would be a constant reminder that in our flesh we cannot accomplish God's plan. We have to do it His way with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the same today, except today the complete circumcision is now done. It's not only the foreskin that's cut away, dead and buried, but now our whole old self ruled by sin is cut off, it's been put off, it's now dead and buried at the cross. And we now have a new life in the Spirit who now controls us. The old self was weak, and we need to understand that, our weakness in self, in order to truly allow the Holy Spirit to work in us with power. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because it's weak. Jesus said the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. God cannot work through the flesh, but it's even more than that. The flesh works against God. The mind governed by the flesh, Romans 8 says, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. We must learn understand our weakness to truly see and experience God's power. Folks, listen, God doesn't care about our education. He doesn't care about our money. He doesn't care about our human influence. He doesn't care about our talents and our abilities or our, our good looks. <laughs> My goodness, look at the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had everything, education, money, influence, prestige. And Jesus on that road to Damascus literally knocked him off his high horse. I wonder if that's where that expression came from. Listen to what Paul said about his weaknesses and trials a little later on in his life. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. That's where God always wants us, who raised the dead. That is why he says later on in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. In insults, in hardships, in persecution, and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because that's when the power of the Holy Spirit is allowed to work and begins working and glorifies God. We need to recognize our weakness because that's when God's name will be glorified. Because it's His strength, not ours, that works. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
You know this verse well, verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. It's not about us. And that brings us to our final point, to experience God's power. We must be others-focused. Others-focused. That was what was so joyful about yesterday. Going back to the title of the message, How to Experience God's Power in Our Lives. That sounds a little bit egotistical, doesn't it? Our motivation can never be selfish. Our motivation can never be selfish. This is not, how can I benefit with God's power? How can our church be glorified? How can we become a mega church? This is not about how I can use God's power to enrich myself to become successful. Motivation is crucial. God sees through all of that and He sees the heart. It's interesting, starting in verse 17 of Genesis 17, and just listen as I read, as Abraham's conversation with God continues. It says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah give a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him and as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. God's saying, Abraham, Ishmael wasn't my plan. That was your plan. Here's my plan, Isaac. And here's what I'm going to do through him. What's rather interesting in recognizing his failure, Abraham, and his weaknesses by trying to do things on his own. He, he realized what he had done. He still asked God to bless Ishmael. Abraham doesn't ask for more blessings for himself. He wants God to not forget about his son Ishmael, even though he was not part of the covenant. Abraham was thinking of others more than himself at that point, and because of his selfless requests, I believe God heard him and responded And folks, this is what God is looking for uh, for in each one of us as we ask God's blessing for God's blessing and power. Too often churches get focused on the bigger and the better and the fancier and more activities and the great programs, the flashy, to draw people to the exciting and to the loud and to to the many activities. But I think they forget They forget that our great commission is to what? Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's that's what Jesus was all about. God the Father from heaven, I believe before our regular time, told Jesus to go into the world and bring salvation. 
Jesus said, that's why I've come. John 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's his purpose. That's why he came. His father had to say, go and do that. And that's what we want when we say we want to experience God's power in our lives and in our church. We want to have that same motivation and that same drive. Talking to the scattered Jews that were fighting among one another, James uh, writes in his letter, You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. There is that motivation aspect. God's not going to answer those kind of prayers. God's not going to pour out His power on selfish desires or motives. There was one man like this in the early church. His name was Simon. It wasn't the apostle, but he actually approaches Simon Peter with money, hoping to receive power to pray for people, to receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in anger, responds to him, listen, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God. With money, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Folks, selfishness is part of that old nature that has been put off, that's dead, that's buried. There is no room for selfishness in the Spirit-filled life. Paul stated his desire in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he said, I want to know Christ, yes, and to know the power of His resurrection. But he also knew that he, it, that would require participation in his suffering. He wanted to know the power of His resurrection so that through Him, people could be blessed through His prayers and preaching and service. That was his motivation. Even in prison, you remember we talked about this. His prayers were not about himself. Help me get out out of this prison. He asked for prayer for opportunities to share Christ. Are we praying that way? I trust we are. Last week I shared my heart about the good things that God is doing in our church, leading us into something amazing. And I'm looking ahead with expectation to see what God is going to do among us. I'm looking and praying that God's power would be displayed in our midst to make us more effective in reaching the community so that Christ through us may continue His heavenly Father's given purpose of seeking and saving the lost. If we're not about that, we're failing. We're not about that. We're failing. Are we making disciples who make disciples who make disciples? Let our desire be to know and experience El Shaddai, God Almighty. Let us see God's power in order to bless others and to glorify Him. Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. 
showing yourselves to be my disciples. Are we bearing that fruit? As we bear fruit, it will give glory to God. So how can we experience God's power in our lives? We must not discount God's ability to do the impossible. He is still that God that did all the impossible things. We must walk blamelessly before the Lord in a sanctified life, fully submitted to Him. We must continually be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit. We must understand our weakness so that God will get all the glory. We must be others-focused to seek and to save the lost. May that be our desire this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the miraculous that you have done in our lives to bring us from death to life. Father, we pray, we want to know your power. We want to know El Shaddai in our lives. We want to know El Shaddai in our church. And we are, you are opening our eyes to see the work that you are doing. And Father, I pray that we will be uh, praying and expecting the miraculous, expecting the impossible to become possible as you continue to work. And Father, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds will be open to what you are doing, to step in and walk with you blamelessly. That you would lead us and we would follow. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.